0: Anything is possible when the sun rises, Henry said as he looked across the horse pasture. No, Tiger said. Anything is possible because the sun rises. Anatomy of a Windmill, written by Jerry Gazelle. The summer of 1994 had me in Snowmass, Aspen, Colorado. It was my first time away from Texas and I was excited. I used to get up way before the sun and make my way down the hill to the shed rows where all of the horses were. Every morning was cold, some mornings just colder than others. For a young man from South Texas, I was used to every morning being humid, most mornings more humid than others. This played hell on my hands, and the skin cracked and broke all across my fingers. Anyway, I used to get down there early so I could clean stalls and pull blankets off of horses before everyone else showed up. I wanted to have it all done so we could start riding as soon as the sun was up. I wasn't looking for any thank you or good job, pat on the back, or anything like that. I just wanted to hurry up and ride. Somehow it never worked out that way. I still never stopped coming early, though. But I started moving a little bit slower and just enjoying my time alone before the sun rose. My mentor, Billy Wayman, had driven up with a load of horses, and he sat down with me one day and asked how I was doing. Billy looked after me a little differently Because he was best friends with mom and he wanted her to not worry about me. And he also wanted me to learn as much as possible. I told him what I had been doing and how I felt about being excluded. He told me to stop doing it. Billy used the term overachiever. And that stung. He was not calling me an overachiever. But from the outside looking in, I could have been made out to be one. He told me to keep my head down, listen, and do my work. Before he got up, he also told me, As long as the sun is up, you'll be horseback. I never forgot that. From that day on, I was patient and still worked hard, but I didn't outwork everybody else. There was no need. The sun dictated our days. My lifelong appreciation for the sunrise started that summer, and anybody in the horse business knows we truly can't start our days without it. P.S., Band-Aid became my best friend that summer. So the beginning of this this post, I used a couple of lines from a a movie concept that I've been working on for way too long. And honestly, I'm not sure I really ever want to finish it because it seems like every time I come up with something new to add to it, it just gets better and better. Plus, it it kind of gives me material to use when i'm trying to write something for instagram or you know trying to just come up with something new to to tell a story so with these particular lines i think we we can all set the scene you know there's a young cowboy in west texas sitting on the porch and he's sitting with a beautiful girl that, that he's fallen in love with and and we don't know where she actually came from some of that's a mystery but anyway they're they're sitting there on the porch and they're watching the sun rise and it's that golden hour of the morning and and I feel like anybody that's spent a life with horses knows this this moment you know you can see every little thing in the haze as the sun is rising and when henry says you know that, that anything is possible she kind of corrects them and she says anything is possible because the sun rises and when i wrote this it was it was with the idea that you know for one the sun rises every day um, it it's it's a miraculous thing it happens every day it's so when when she says because the sun rises she's making the point that everything is possible Always. You know, if, if if we think it's something we can do, we can do it. We don't need to wait for the sun to rise before it's possible. And at the same time, it doesn't quit being possible when the sun sets. It's always this idea that that it's perpetual, you know, that our possibilities are never ending. And because of the miracle of the sunrise we have the miracle of possibilities and that's kind of what what she was trying to explain uh to Henry in this particular scene um from Anatomy of a Windmill so hopefully that makes some sense um it 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 was just one of those things i remember one morning actually watching the sunrise and those lines came to me for this movie concept and so that's that's a little bit of me trying to explain what, what that, what that opening line meant. And so now moving in to that summer, uh, 1994, I had been working for Tommy already and we were actually getting ready to leave for snow mass for the summer. And it was in June and we were body clipping horses that had all come up from Argentina. And, you know, the seasons are opposite. So, you know, the summertime is basically the wintertime uh, down there. And, and so all those horses that had been shipped up from Argentina had long hair. And we had to get them all body clipped and start working them before we left for that summer. But the one thing about going away for the summer is mom and dad were really excited. Mom especially, because she had watched me start to learn and start to become passionate about working for tommy and riding horses every day and especially learning how to train polo ponies so it was it was partly what I was doing for the sake of mom you know the opportunities maybe she didn't have at my age but but she was really proud of me but the funny thing about going away for the summer was the idea that they they threw me a going away party which the i I love the sentiment of it you know but it, it wasn't like I wasn't coming home. I was going to be gone for a couple of months and and we were just going to be in Colorado and and it wasn't like I was going away with strangers, you know. Mom knew everyone that that I would be with, but it was just this this big leap, you know, and and they were really proud of me and and so it was kind of a funny that they that they threw me a going away party and and um so that was that was kind of funny. Um but so when we loaded up to to head to, to Colorado, it this is kind of where I I'd, I'd kind of developed this idea that that it, whenever I go long distances with horses, for some reason, you know, we we try to be loaded up and on the road by four a.m. and that's what we did back then, and that's what I still try to do today if I'm traveling uh, a long long ways, and I don't know where it came from or why it came to be but we were on the road at 4 a.m. and headed west and then headed north and and growing up the farthest i'd ever been was san angelo texas because back in the day mom was still showing quarter horses and they had an aqha show in san angelo and so that's the farthest I'd ever been anywhere. And so once we started heading towards Colorado, it seemed like it was a really long drive, which our first day we drove all the way to Dalhart from Adkins or from San Antonio. And so it was twelve, thirteen hours getting up there, but we unloaded all the horses there at the at the sale barn in Dalhart, uh, which I've mentioned before in some of my Instagram posts, but we laid, laid over that night there, and then the next day we loaded up, and we drove to Castle Rock, uh, Colorado, uh, to Mike Flannery's farm, and we laid over there that night, and it was kind of neat because a lot of people I met up there, I had met at Ratama in San Antonio, so it was, it was something new to, to, to be around those people in their element. And, and so it just added another layer to, to all my experiences and the, and the people that I was meeting along the way. So that third day we made it to, to Aspen snowmass and into Rose spur. And and honestly, I, I wasn't sure what to expect. You know, I wasn't sure if we were going to a ranch or if we were going to a polo club, but in the end it was a polo club on a ranch and it was a really cool setting. Um, there was three polo fields, if I remember right, and two of them were kind of polo fields they used during the week, and then there was a third field that uh, that was um, called Haps Field, and and it was it was kind of their Sunday field, and it was on the one end of the ranch. I I want to say on the east end of the ranch, but I could have my my bearings a little wrong on that. But anyway, we got up there, and and all of the shed rows were galvanized piped stalls with roofs over them and then we had some paddocks and then a couple small pastures and there was this little creek that ran through two of the paddocks That was really nice for icing horses legs you know it it, on a sunday if we had some horses that might have had some leg issues we could tie them on the on the rail and have them stand in that cold water and, and really get their legs good and tight but uh anyway we we got all the horses settled in and and then uh they showed me where I'd be living for the summer, and there was an apartment inside of this big Quonset hut at the top of this hill, and it was the biggest Quonset I had ever seen. Um, it was big, and the apartment was inside, and you had to walk up these stairs to that apartment, and it was, it was big inside. It was almost like a, like a house, and I shared it with a few other people. Um, some of them were incredible people. Um they they almost need their own stories, but anyway, uh, that was kind of the start of the summer, um, and and so we started the summer kind of getting into a rhythm. We were still taking horses out in sets, and then then playing some slow chuckers on them, and but every morning we would get up, clean stalls, pull blankets off, and then organize what we were going to do with the horses for that day, and and so there was a lot going on every day and and i think one of the first things uh when the summer kind of got started is is one morning tommy asked me to take this little mare out and just put some miles on her and her name was toba and she was a a little argentine mare and and i was really excited about that because because i tommy was going to just let me go out and just ride this mare, and he kind of pointed off, and he said, "Take her up that mountain over there and just put some miles on her; she just needs she just needs some miles and and it and I felt like he trusted me with this with this little mare, and I guess the the thing that that it was good and bad because it was good in a sense that he trusted me with this horse, and I got to go off by myself. I got to just go ride." Um, We had been really busy already, and it was always, we were just going, you know, just 100 miles an hour, and and so it gave me a time to, to, to be alone and relax, but it also made me want to do it more and more. It made me want to just, to be horseback, and a lot of times by myself, or just riding these horses, just putting miles on them, and... And so that's where I kind of got started with getting to the barn earlier and earlier and trying to get everything done so we could just get horseback, you know, by the time everybody got down there. And and it was, you know, it wasn't good to do that. Uh, and at first I didn't realize that. I mean, I was 19 years old. I was I was young, naive, eager, excited, and still pretty, pretty, um, green when it came to this, this particular horse world, uh, the polo world. And so I, I started to feel excluded from everybody. You know, I, I, I felt like I was by myself and, and I was putting myself in that position. So I felt like I was being taken advantage of, which, Maybe I was a little bit, but I was making myself the victim of how I was feeling and how I was being treated. And and so I, I started to really feel homesick. Um, but at the time, you know, I mean, this might be hard for a lot of people to believe these days, but we didn't have cell phones and we had landlines. And the thing about our landline was if I called home to talk to mom it would come out of my paycheck. But also, I didn't want to do that. I didn't want mom to worry. I didn't want mom to hear me complain or to whine or to sound like I was letting her down or letting everybody else down. So I just kind of sucked it up and kept kept doing it without realizing that, that what I was doing was causing my own damage. So not long into that summer, uh, Billy Wayman, who was... Tommy's dad and, and and one of my great mentors brought a load of horses up up to uh, up to Rose spur and before he left he sat down with me one morning and he asked how I was doing and and you know just kind of checking in on me because him and mom were 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 pretty close if not best of friends and and he kind of took care of me a little differently he didn't show me any special treatment but he just wanted to make sure I was okay and. When I explained to him what was going on, you know, that's when he called me. He didn't call me an overachiever, but he said that I was I was doing things that overachievers would do and that's not a good thing because there's a difference between taking the initiative and being an overachiever and so the way Billy explained it to me was the idea that that I was taking the possibility of teamwork Out of what I, you know, with what I was doing. So I was excluding myself, but in a way, I was excluding everyone else from those chores. And, you know, even one of the guys eventually was like, you know what? Let him do it. If he wants to break his back cleaning stalls and doing all of this, that's, you know, more power to him. We'll just sit and drink coffee. We'll take our time in the morning and let him do all the work. But it was the idea that, that, that I was taking away from them the experiences that made us all work together, so that that really hit hard with me you know and and made me realize that uh you know that that I needed to slow down and just take things as they come and and before Billy left, he also said, "You know, you know, son, you." You'll be horseback plenty, and he kind of made a point that eventually there'd be days I would be sick of being horseback because it would get to be where we'd be horseback sixteen hours a day, you know, working horses. So it was a uh, that was a good lesson learned, and I've had to learn over the years uh, working for other people or even observing other people that I worked with, the difference between being an overachiever and being someone who takes the initiative. And I think there's a big difference between the two. So, you know, I started, you know, enjoying my mornings a little bit more, uh, slowed down a little bit. And in the end, I was still horseback more than a lot of people my age probably were at that time. You know, as far as when I say horseback on the amount of horses that I got to ride uh during the day. So that was a that was a that was a good lesson learned and and so another thing that happened up there and I've written about it before was the idea that um well I, I'll kind of just tell the story about we were we were all eating lunch one day and and I was sitting with a few people at the table and and somebody said, we want you to be the next so-and-so. And, and I'm not going to mention names. Names aren't important at this point. But, you know, when I heard that, at first I was kind of excited. But but being young and being, I, I wouldn't say cocky, I was confident, but I was also confused at the time, you know, being being new in, in that, that particular world. I said, you know, I I don't want to be the next so-and-so. I want to be the first Jerry Gazelle. And at first, you know, I, I kind of... It was something I probably shouldn't have said out loud, but it just came out. You know, it, it's not like I planned to say it, and it's not like I i rehearsed it before I said it. It just came out. It's not like I thought it, then said it. It just came out. and And I feel like there was a little bit of, you know disappointment and i'd like to think that that maybe there was also a little bit of appreciation for what i said uh but but i was smart enough to realize that the circumstances to become that particular person were never going to be presented to me and i would just set myself up for disappointment or failure you know because because it just doesn't always work out that way But at the same time, I didn't know who the first Jerry Gazelle was going to be. You know, if I was going to be a polo player, a horse trainer, uh, a cowboy, you know, I, I didn't know what all of that entailed. So, you know, saying I wanted to be the first Jerry Gazelle was kind of setting in motion all of the things that happened from that day to this day right now. You know, all of the experiences along the way, and all of the the details of all of the places I've been, the people I've met, the horses I've ridden, all of the experiences inside and outside of the horse industry, or anything that involves, um, you know, training horses, cowboying, playing polo, rodeo, and whatever it might have been, have all led up to this point, and I'm still becoming the first. Jerry Gazelle. It's not like it's ending anytime soon. And and so it was this idea that that I didn't want to work hard to be somebody else, especially somebody that already existed. You know, I, I see a lot of that in our industry where, you know, there's a difference between looking up to and aspiring to accomplish the things that we see other horsemen and other horsewomen doing. But we take it so far as we try to become that person instead of honoring who we were born to be, recognizing our talents and recognizing our lack of talent, you know, and capitalizing on both of them is, is we try to, we try to, to disillusion ourselves into, into believing that we could be that person when you can, you can be part of who that person is, and then you can be so much more. And, and so that was kind of that moment where I probably shouldn't have said it just out of being respectful to everybody. But, but again, you know, I said it and there was no going back from there. And, and I wouldn't change a thing, you know, I wouldn't be where I am right now if I hadn't made that decision right there to, to be somewhat aware, self-aware, um, of the things that were possible and the things that would never be possible um and that goes back to anything and everything is possible, but at the same time, we have to recognize what is possible and and be rational with with those thoughts and and so uh i'm I'm thankful for those those times um you know when I was up there and learning these lessons and so going from there uh during the summer uh tommy had gone off to utah and he bought some thoroughbred horses off the track and he brought them back to rose spur And, and there was this little brown mare named milky way and she was really pretty seal brown mare and she kind of got a little bit lighter brown around her nose and then she had this really nice pretty bald face uh not quite she more or less just a strip and I remember a day Tommy was like, you know, take that mare down to the polo field and stick and ball her. And, and I was kind of blown away because I was still pretty green. But but Tommy had an interest with me riding some of these horses that that they hadn't raised, I guess, is, is a good way to put it. And so I felt really proud that, that he asked me to do that. And then he eventually said, you know, take her in a couple of these keep away games. And, you know, keep away, they just... We'd go down there on these young horses and we'd kind of hit the ball around with guys on, on other young horses and, and we'd be more mindful to training on these horses than trying to, to play polo on them in the beginning and then we could slowly progress from there. So I was really excited about that and pretty proud of that moment um, because I could see that Tommy was taking an interest in me as a horseman and trying to teach me things and I wasn't just being... A polo groom or taking out sets or you know just putting miles on horses you know he had added another layer to to my education so that was really exciting and then there was this big brown gilding and I remember I got on him one morning and Tommy was on another horse and we started to leave the barn and we were going to go out and ride on the polo field and we go out this gate, and this horse just throws himself down on the ground. And, and Tommy's first reaction was, what did you do? Why did he do that? And I thought, man, I didn't do anything. This horse just threw himself down on the ground. And I had bailed off of him you know, when he went down. And So when he gets back up, I get back on him, and we go up the hill again and come back down. But it was every time we went through a gate – this horse would throw himself down on the ground. And, and so we came kind of came to the idea that this horse probably learned that on the track and he was dumping these jockeys when they were trying to to probably load them in, you know, in the starting gates. And so I remember we go back to the barn and Tommy gets a polo whip. And we go back out and he said, if that horse does it again, you ride him to the ground and don't get off. And I kind of thought, man, this be a little dangerous but when that horse went down Tommy stepped off his horse and he just kind of whipped him in the hip with that polo whip and that horse jumped up off the ground with me in the saddle and away we went and Tommy said you just stay on him until he starts to relax and uh, you know and just just camp on him and so I stayed on him for a pretty good while and I remember finally Tommy found me uh we were kind of heading back towards the barns and and he comes riding up on a horse and we we started coming towards this gate and this horse kept going you know he was still going forward but it felt like he was starting to spread all four legs out like he wanted to just lay down except still going forward and tommy had that that polo whip but all he did was kind of stay behind me and he smooched to that horse and, and we got him to go on and then we just kept practicing going through gates And we got that horse to quit laying down, you know, anytime we went through a gate. And I don't know where that horse ended up, actually. He was kind of a neat horse, but but I learned a little bit about, you know, some of these horses coming off the track and some of the things we could do to fix them, um, you know, the best we could. But but kind of going more into that summer, you know, I, I was young, I was away from home, and I was having a good time. So we spent a lot of time staying up late and we would drink beer and have fun and, and just have a good old time and and I I was wearing myself out I was kind of burning the candle at both ends and at the same time I was I you know I, I was trying to balance all of my feelings of you know being tired being excited you know being homesick but looking for more adventure you know it, one feeling would kind of contradict another feeling and and I was kind of wearing myself out and so I remember at one point I finally decided that I needed to quit drinking and staying out all night you know that I needed to go to bed early that I needed to to really focus on working and so one morning I got down to the barn and I was feeling kind of nauseous and feeling a little bit dizzy and I sat down on this step uh, on one of the tack rooms and, and I I just, I couldn't even lift my head up. And I remember I laid down on the ground and I laid on my back and put my knees up in there and things were just spinning out of control. And, and so I rolled over in the fetal position and just laid there and I was trying my best to not be sick. And somebody found me laying on the ground and, and I told them, you know, I just didn't, feel right. And so they got me to the house and I got into bed and turns out I had altitude sickness and which I didn't know what that was and and actually everybody was kind of surprised I hadn't gotten it sooner. But at the same time everybody was was kind of acting like I was being lazy and hungover, you know, and I hadn't drank any beer in a couple of days and and I wasn't hungover. I wasn't sick from from staying up late and drinking. And at one point somebody came in there and this was probably two days after I'd been laying in bed and I hadn't had anything to drink. I hadn't had anything to eat, you know, no water, nothing. And they said, look, you either need to go to the hospital or you need to try to get up and go back to work because the, you know, everybody at the barn is, is talking about you not working. And, and I guess, kind of what i the conclusion i'd come to and and it has a lot to do with the horse industry even the ranching industry in general is this idea of a lack of compassion and it's not it sounds worse than it is but i can understand where it comes from and it's this idea that you know We've got a business to run. We've got, you know, 60 horses here that we need to get out every day and work. And when someone isn't working, it stacks work on to other people. So you have to suck it up and get to work. And and so that lack of compassion sounds worse than it is, but it's also there's a big lesson in that, you know, and 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 I you know, I I can go back to talking about, you know, breaking my arm and mom making me get horseback. So I had to make myself get up and I can remember when I made it back to the barn and I still couldn't stand up straight I couldn't look left or right without kind of almost falling down and finally they realized that I did have altitude sickness but I'd finally made an attempt to get to work and so they were they were easy on me at, at, at the moment so instead of trying to make me get horseback they just found some other things to do but as long as I was trying to work that made things better and so that was that was kind of an, uh, an interesting lesson and luckily years later one of my closest friends told me the same exact story it happened to him and and almost in the same exact place and it was at Rose Spur but but he went through the same thing and it just happened to be 15 years later and so I felt somewhat validated but also it was you know a little late but you know lessons learned you know it it was it was it was okay you know and and so um moving on you know kind of during the summer I'd learned that that Kurt Russell and Goldie Hawn had a house just outside of the ranch. It was at the end of one of these roads. It was actually just almost at the end of, of that Sunday polo field. And so I was all excited that I could possibly meet Kurt Russell, who, who at the time, you know, I always look back and I think the one movie that I really loved that he was in was big trouble in little China, uh, which is still one of my all time favorite movies. But, um at the time, Toby, I think, Toby Wayman was 10, if I remember right. And Kurt and Goldie had two boys that I think were roughly the same age. And one day they asked me to go pick up Toby at Kurt's house. And man, I was super excited. So I i drove down there and I parked the truck and I walked up to the house and they were shooting skeet. If I remember, right. they had the, the trap sitting out there and... and Goldie had gone in the house but Kurt was out there so I walked up and Kurt introduced himself to me and man I felt like I was the coolest guy in the world you know I I'd, I'd just met Kurt Russell and anyway and and a couple days later it was actually on a Sunday and we just got done playing polo and we were getting everything loaded up and I walked over to uh, they had this tent set up on the side of the of the polo field and, and Kurt had ridden over there on this buckskin horse that he had and And I had to go over there and ask Tommy something. And so when I got over there, Kurt was on his horse and he said, hey, Tex, how are you today? And he leaned down and shook my hand. And man, I thought, wow, he just called me Tex. He gave me a nickname. And later on, I realized he probably just didn't remember my name, but he remembered that I was from Texas. And so that was kind of a a cool experience getting to meet him. That was kind of my first experience meeting a celebrity, and especially a celebrity that I wanted to meet. And looking back, it's really cool when I watch movies now and I see Kurt in them, I can be like, man, he called me Tex, you know, long time ago. And so that was that was always uh, a good, funny experience. But um, moving on, kind of, you know, the the summer started to wind down and and uh, we were have we had an Asado one night and. I'll back up a little bit and talk about uh, David Leminska, the, the polo photographer. He was somebody that I thought was, is one of the coolest people I'd ever met. Just, just a phenomenal guy and an amazing photographer. And, and remembering some of those horses that we had up there that summer, we had a, a big mare named Snapple. We had a little mare named Cashmere, um, Bordabuja, uh, Caparinha, um, bandit uh double down uh milky way of course and then there were some other horses in there and then sue ellen who um who is a horse that that tommy raised and and i a lot of people in the polo world will know sue ellen and know what what a phenomenal horse she's turned out to be but i always look back and think like where is the offspring of these horses now you know like like what part in in my life did I get to touch upon these great polo horses and how they are being remembered or perpetuated you know today, you know in, in the polo world. So there was this moment. Um, back then, we would have to look through photo albums that David had, and if you wanted a photograph, you could find it on these sheets that would have like a hundred little tiny photographs on it. And I remember we were laying on the ground looking through this photo album and we had Caipirinha tacked up and she was looking down at that photo album as well and and David actually got a photograph of it. So David took a photograph of us looking at his photographs in a photo album. And I remember when I saw that photo I wanted a copy of it because there was just this kind of endearing moment, you know, a memory of, of one of these horses. And, and I had that photo over the years and it got wet somehow. And I ended up losing that photo. But, but in the meantime, David had taken a photo of me standing next to a a big gilding we had named Bandit. And, I didn't know he took that photo of me and, and it probably doesn't mean anything you know, to anybody anymore and, and maybe it didn't mean much to David when he took it but it meant a lot to me because at the end of the summer we had an Asado and Rosemary Wayman, Rosie, came up and handed me that photo and it was really meaningful to me because she when she gave me that photo she said your mom would be proud. And there was a lot of maybe sentiment and thought that I applied to it that might have not been there. You know, the fact that that David thought enough to take a photo of me and that Rosie thought enough to buy that photo and to give it to me and to acknowledge that my mom would be proud. You know, it was, it was the end of the summer. I'd worked. I'd would i done all of this. I felt like I had accomplished a lot and there was a photo to to commemorate, you know, that summer. So it it meant a lot to me, and and Mom kept that photo in her office until she passed away, and and I now have that that photo here in in my shop, and I look at it from time to time, and I can remember that entire summer. So, moving towards the end of the summer, there was this old semi truck that was parked in that Quonset hut all summer, and was purple, and it, it, and I couldn't tell you the make or model, year, or anything about this purple semi-truck it was an old cab over and it looked like a shoebox on wheels and at some point during the summer Tommy had made a deal and sold that semi-truck to Ralph Carpenter and and Ralph Carpenter um, has his own place in polo history and I and if I had to nominate somebody to be in the Polo Hall of Fame it would be Ralph Carpenter just because of his contributions or at least the stories of Ralph you know contributing to to our our lives and legacies in polo he was one of those guys that he could buy and sell anything including polo ponies and so the, it was one of those i think it was probably two days before we left tommy came to me and he said hey you're going to follow ralph back to to san antone with that that purple semi and and at first i thought i was going to be driving that semi and and I had no idea how to drive one of those things. And, and anyway, he explained that Ralph was coming up with a truck and trailer and that we would load that trailer with horses and I would drive the rig and follow that purple truck. Ralph would drive that semi back. And, and so when the time came, we loaded up 12 horses in the trailer and we loaded up as much tack and blankets and supplies that we had hauled up there. We loaded all that in the tack room of that trailer. and, and, Ralph and I headed south back to Texas, and we went from Aspen to Dalhart in one day. And I think that was the longest day trip I had ever, ever driven. Um, I say day trip. That was the longest drive I had ever done because that semi would go about 60 miles an hour. And it was scary enough just driving through the mountains with a load of horses. But once we got south of Denver, it was you know going 60 miles an hour on the interstate was horrible and that thing's blowing black smoke and every once in a while I would like pop these big smoke rings out of the stacks and I thought any minute now that thing was going to break down somewhere but we made it to Dalhart that first day and uh we unloaded all the horses there at the sale barn again and I remember Ralph wanted to get a hotel room and kind of the last thing I wanted to do was share a hotel room with Ralph Carpenter and And plus, I had grown really attached to all these horses. You know, I, I became really protective of them. And I told Ralph, I said, I'll just sleep in the pickup and keep an eye on the horses all night. And he went ahead and he jumped in that purple truck and drove into Dalhart and got a hotel room. And the next morning, I had all the horses loaded up and ready to go. And I could hear that purple truck coming over the hill, making all kinds of noise. And so he pulled up and, you know, I was ready to go. So we headed south and we got... Back to Adkins late that night, and when we pulled up to the barn, Billy was waiting, and my brother showed up because I didn't have a way to get back to Mom and Dad's house. But Billy was there and my brother was there, and and we unloaded all of the horses and put them all into stalls, made sure they all had water, and then we unloaded everything out of the tack room of that trailer, and we kind of just stacked it all right there. you know, outside of the trailer, and, and I remember, though, when we got, when we pulled in, and I stepped out of the truck, I remember how hot and humid it was, you know, it was the first, first week in September, and I'd spent the whole summer in a really dry and cool climate, and so getting back down there to San Antonio, it was hot and humid, and by the time we got everything done, I was drenched in sweat, and I just thought, God dang, what I'd give to be back up there, Uh you know, but anyway, um, it was a good summer. Um, I learned a lot that summer, not just about training horses, but I had to grow up a little bit that summer and, and I wasn't ever sure what I learned would, would be something that would carry me through life. But, you know, as I sit here doing this podcast, I think about how valuable that first summer away from home was, and it might not seem like a big deal to a lot of people, but it, but it, it was to me, and I can still remember a lot of the, the people that I met that summer, and how I I miss seeing them, or miss knowing them, in a sense, and what I learned from them, and and so there was just a lot to that summer, and uh, I'm thankful for that time, and, and I'm really grateful for the lesson I, I learned while I was up there, and, and so I hope that what I talk about here will will help people out as well and maybe they can take something from it. So um I'll wrap it up there and uh I guess you know, probably the last thing I'll say it just has to do with band aids. You know, back then, you know, I, I could barely afford to buy chapstick and you needed it up there in, in Colorado, but uh, I eventually ran out of band-aids, and I had to start using electric tape on my fingers. And anybody that knows me now knows that I've got band-aids stashed everywhere because I'm either cutting my my fingers or doing something to where I feel like I need a band-aid. And, and so I've always, you know, made a point that, you know, when I got older, I would always be able to afford to have a tank full of gas, and I would always have a box of band-aids somewhere. And so I, I try to have those two things all the time, but that's just a little lighthearted uh something about you know about that summer and and a life lesson but uh anyway i'll wrap it up here and and once again i i want to thank everybody for listening to this podcast uh it really means a lot and and i like when when people write to me and they they tell me you know something good you know that they can take away from my podcast and so i i really appreciate that you know everybody that listens and everybody that shares it so Um, Just remember that there's always something to chase. And until next time, adios.